Welcome back to Half the Battle. I'm your host, as always, Daniel Levy, your guest co-host, Brandon Olivas. Today, we're going to talk about UFC 289, Amanda Nunes versus Irena Aldana for the UFC Bantamweight title, and it's going down this Saturday night live at the Rogers Center in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. The UFC's official return to Canada many years in the making. They got a great title fight in the main event, but the co-main event between Dubronx and Benil Dariush, possible number one contender fight. I mean, I'm pretty fucking dope. I'm, I'm pretty fucking stoked for, for this weekend, man. Yeah, me too. I mean, the card is a little bit lackluster, but man, there's some good fights sprinkled here and there. I can't wait to watch. Absolutely. So let's get down to business right away, man. The main event of the evening, you got the women's goat or quote as clarissa shield likes to say amanda nunes she's 22 and 5 taking on irena aldana who's 14 and 6 and currently they got it amanda nunes minus 325 the comeback on irena aldana is plus 250 now brandon i mean i know we're used to these huge lines on amanda nunes normally we're talking minus 600 normally we're talking i mean i've seen minus 1200 before in certain spots right so you know, that first Juliana Pena fight is driving this line down, um, you know, and then they rematched in the subsequent fight. And I mean, she basically dominated her pillar to post. Uh, Dana White did have some criticism. He said he, he said she played it a little bit safe. I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, but at the same time, man, it, it's one of these situations where it's like when you watch the tape on this fight and when you even look at the stats on this fight, all indications lean to amanda having her covered pretty much everywhere but when you talk about the narratives that's where you know maybe someone can make a case for aldana bringing up uh you know if there's one tape example i want to bring up that i can maybe make a case for irena it's that first juliana fight where like juliana was jabbing up amanda now i don't know if that was the element of surprise or what it was but i know that irena has got a lot cleaner hands than juliana pena so this is a hell of a main event how you break it down I, uh, so I, I understand that, that argument. I, I guess I want to add a couple things just as being a fighter myself, um, and, and talking about it, right. Adrenaline dumps are a huge thing, right? I guess one of the most recent examples we saw was, um, Jacqueline Amorum the other day, right? Everything that I hear inside the gym, inside that place, she mops up girls that are in the top 15 all the time. She is the top person at ATT standing on the ground, all the places. Right. And in that fight, she dominated, took her back, was, you know, Little, little bit away from just finishing that fight and then had a complete adrenaline dump. And that happens a lot, right? One thing I will say about fighting, uh, fighting somebody like Pena, and I actually tweeted this out earlier today. There's a guy like this in my gym. He's not good. He's very new to MMA. He's very green. His striking is, it's getting there, but it's not there yet. His jiu-jitsu is not very good. His wrestling is not very good. But one thing that he does is he scrambles like crazy. He puts out insane volume. And he's so awkward on the feet that you can't really time things. In my opinion, it's a lot easier to fight somebody who is a little bit more clean and a little bit more technical than somebody who is unpredictable, right? So you add all those things in together, right? She had a huge adrenaline dump. She tried killing her. She couldn't get the timing. She kept getting hit with the jabs. And you have a dominant champion that starts finally getting hit for the first time shocking right and then you, you go in for the kill and you try to kill this person we saw fight number two played out completely different right she beat her within an inch of her life how the fight should have gone the first time um honestly i, I was massive on Irene aldana uh aldana, however the hell you say the name i'm mexican i should be able to say this um aldana. when she fought macy 
Aldana, yeah. When she fought Macy Chasson. And I couldn't have been more disappointed in that fight. I mean, she looked great in the first round, right? Got out grappled. I was left with a sour taste in my mouth. I honestly think a lot of this line has to do with Alexa Grasso, right? I think everybody's hoping for lightning striking twice with another dominant champion going down to the Mexican, right? I was one of the few people that actually called Alexa Grasso in that fight. But I think Valentina makes a lot more mistakes than Amanda Nunes makes, right? There's a lot of things I don't like about Valentina's game that I do like about uh, Amanda's game, right? The one thing that you'd have to bank on if you have a ticket on Irina here is that uh, Amanda gasses. That's not really a play that I like to have. I like to choose the better fighter who's the more dominant champion who has a million more ways to win is a 10 times better wrestler than Macy Chasson, who was also taking Irene down. Better jiu-jitsu, better striking, more power, more physical. I, I don't really understand why this line is that close. Um, I, I think this is a gift line for, for Amanda Nunes. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those situations where sometimes on the night, certain people won't be denied. Like when Bisbing fought Rockle the second time, I mean, it didn't matter what the odds were. It didn't matter what the stats say. It didn't matter what happened the first time they fought. He just wasn't going to be denied on the night. And sometimes that tends to be the case. Will that be the case here? <laughs> now, I hear people talking about how Irena is young and hungry. And I'm not saying she's old or anything, but I will say she is four days older than uh, than Amanda Nunez. So let's not sit here and act like, <laughs> you know, Nunez is five years older or anything like that. No, uh, Irena is the older one here. Just in terms of the age, age is nothing but a number. But I'm just saying. You know, just to correct uh, some bullshit narratives. But I mean, look, when, like I said earlier, when you watch the tape, I mean, all <laughs> indications point to Amanda having her covered in every part of the game. It's just about, you know, Irena seems to, you know, kind of find her groove late into the fight for the most part, because she did cost me a ticket on Rocky Pennington when she went uh, for that fucking stupid calf slicer in round three, gives up position, loses the decision, right? Uh, but like you were saying, you know, sometimes Amanda exerts so much energy, maybe like, you know, in late rounds against Jermaine Durandamy or in other fights, you know, that third round and the first uh, Valentina fight, right, where she ended up, you know, yeah, she she went through some stuff there. So and one thing about Irena is she's not going to slow down. She is going to be there for the duration of the fight. But I also expect her to get dominated at points in this fight. Like even that last fight against Macy Chazon, that first round was good with Aldana. A lot of people yep. thought that she may have uh, possibly got a tap there from uh, Macy Chazon that the ref might have not seen. But regardless of that, the fight carries on and Macy Chazon's having a lot of success with top control. And I mean, that that finish that Irena had was like a once in a lifetime finish that you're probably never going to see ever again in all your years watching this sport. So I wouldn't bang on something like that. It's just back to what we were talking about with Pena kind of jabbing her up in that first fight, but you brought up a great point, the adrenaline dump and also the disappointment of you threw all your best shots at this chick and she's still right there in your face, giving it back. And sometimes when that happens to the bully, you know, they uh, tend to fold a little bit, which we saw back in the day when she fought Kat Zingano. Like people only remember the end when Kat Zingano full mounted Amanda and she was teeing off on her. But the first round and a half, I mean, Amanda was throwing her around all over the place, man. So do you kind of view this as a bully type, you know, situation where if Irena can weather some kind of storm, maybe she can discourage Amanda late and take over or is, is, you know, or were those kind of isolated incidents? Yeah, I think it's an isolated incident, right? We, we saw her put together five rounds after that and, and it was dominant in every facet of the game. Uh, 
Uh, honestly, I think the grappling is the biggest issue here, right? On the feet, maybe it's competitive. You have someone that moves a lot, jabs a lot, has pretty pretty good boxing versus more of a power striker. But, uh, I mean, I think the grappling is it's 10 worlds apart. It's not even close. And at any point, if Amanda's feeling uncomfortable, she can lean on that wrestling and the jiu-jitsu. She's got an excellent top game, and it's over. I will say this. One thing that's cool <laughs> about Irena Aldana that you haven't seen – in a lot of you know the women's MMA fighters is she's actually gotten out there she's actually gotten out there and landed like first round knockouts and I'm not talking about you know a judo throw and kind of pounding someone out I'm talking about dropping them on the feet and knocking them out cold and it's happened more than once you know to Ketlin Vieira the Yana Santos so I mean chick does have power and like you said her hands are a lot cleaner than Pena's but like you also said when you're in the gym and you're training with people usually you're used to kind of traditional techniques whereas when someone's kind of wild kind of awkward and you're not used to seeing that look that's where it can kind of throw you off you know throw you off guard a bit oh sorry let me just finish with this because I, I was talking about the tweet that i had said earlier my teammate who's not the best in the world um he's had one amateur fight he's one to know as an amateur you know I, I watch sparring rounds with a guy who is a muay thai striker who teaches classes at big name gyms very very talented guy very very good guy I watched this amateur beat the brakes off of him, not because he's more technical, not because he's cleaner or stronger or hits harder. He just is awkward. He's got tons of volume. He's in your face. And I've I seen it two times in a row. This guy's got 30 pro fights versus a guy with one amateur fight and the amateur destroyed him. Wow. It's, it's, it's hard to fight somebody awkward, somebody new, somebody green sometimes, right? Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, another thing, let's not forget that not that long ago, Holly Holm didn't just beat Irena Aldana, Brandon. Holly Holm gave Irena Aldana a tour of the octagon. It was the vet lesson of vet lessons. It was a destruction. <laughs> Doubles are up on strikes. You know, lands five takedowns. It was a total clinic. Um, I mean, would you be surprised to see Amanda Nunes do something similar here? I mean... You know, she can put up those numbers. She can land those takedowns. She can la land those knockdowns. Um, what do you think about that that possibility? Of Irene doing it? No, of Amanda kind of doing, you know, just giving Irene a five-round tour of the octagon, kind of like Holly Holm did to Irene. No, I think this one's a finish. I, 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 don't, I don't see this going, uh, going the distance. I think she's going to finish her. I don't think it will be close. So your pick is Amanda Nunes, as, as we can see. Yeah. Yeah, and mine is as well, man. Like I said, all the film, all the stats, all that. I mean, for the most part, the only stats that favor Irena is maybe a little bit more volume and maybe slightly better defense. But I say that, but she gets tagged up badly. Just the percentage-wise says her defense is 5% better. But when I watch some of, her, some of her fights, she's been getting tagged clean since the beginning of her career, you know? Not just the Invicted days, but even UFC debut against uh, Leslie Smith, man, she was getting tagged up badly in that. And uh, she's definitely had to work on her head strike defense big time. Cause I mean, she's kind of like, I'd consider her to be one of the taller women in that weight class. So even though when we talk about the guys having tall man defense, we talk about guys that are six, two, six, three, whatever, she's five foot nine. And that's pretty damn tall for, for a woman in that weight class. And she does have that tall woman's defense, so to speak. Uh, and that's something that, you know, a heavy hitter like a man, can absolutely capitalize on. But like I said, that's all the film and the stats and all that. But that doesn't always tell the story. So sometimes like when you want to talk about the narratives, like we were talking about Bisbing, like, 
is this the time when Irena will simply not be denied? You know, Amanda um, <laughs> is, definitely, is definitely closer to retirement than she is to the beginning of her career. No, no doubt about it. But again, narrative is all speculative. So I don't know how much stock you want to put into that. But those are the only kind of arguments I can make for Irena are narrative based ones, whereas the stats and film and technique based ones are all for Amanda. Yeah, I think there just comes a point when someone is just so much better than somebody else that the narratives don't really make a difference. Now, if it was very close in skill level, now we're talking something completely different. But I, I just think that skill gap is way too much. Maybe she makes it competitive based on these narratives, but I, I don't uh, I don't see that really happening. Co-main event of the evening in the lightweight division. We got the former champ, Charles Dubronx Oliveira. He's 33 and 9, taking on Benil Dariush, who's 22, 4 and 1. Currently, they got it. Benil Dariush, minus 145. The comeback on Charles Dubronx is plus 125. So action's been coming in on Benil Dariush. Not that much. And, you know, last fight for Charles Dubronx, you know, against Islam, man, I was saying on the show that I thought Islam was the discount of the century because, you know, back to the talk with Amanda where, you know, you had to pay those minus 700s. You had to pay those minus 1200s, whatever. Um, Islam was only, I think I paid like minus 160, minus 163, minus 165, somewhere around there uh, against Charles. And that was like, like I said, discount of the century. Cause when's the last time, like when's the next time you'll ever get a minus one something on Islam Makhachev versus anyone. His next fight against Volk, which was a way closer fight than the Dubronx fight. He's minus 400 in that spot, Brandon. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah so it, it's kind of interesting, but <laughs> Benil is a guy that's been flying under the radar for years and years and years and he's a guy that's picked himself up from devastating losses i mean he knows what it means to have you know a six fight win streak in the ufc and i'm talking about in 2015 brandon i'm not talking about his current win streak right now so this is a guy that's picked himself up he already had that six fight win streak like i was talking about in 2015 goes through some ups and downs and now he's on a what seven or eight fight win streak in 2022 uh coming into 2023 and this is a title eliminator for him. I mean, talk about paying your dues. That's what Neil's done. And not just in MMA, Brandon. I mean, I'm pretty damn sure that you know about that grappling match he had against Crone Gracie where, like, he might have not gotten his arm raised, but morally and in terms of the respect from the public, people were like, yo, who's this kid, Dariush? Hey, uh, how long have you been doing jiu-jitsu? Uh a while i mean i i've been doing like no gi like for a long time but in the gi only since like <laughs> 16 17 i mean not 16 years old 2016 2017 yeah yeah i i got what you meant yesterday actually was uh june 6 which would be 12 years for me so i started when i was 14 so that's 12 years in the game for me and uh we were actually just talking before the show a little bit about my jiu-jitsu background well when i was coming up i was really good friends with the homulo guys uh, Edwin Najmi, Hamilo Bahal, Gabriel Argus, uh, a lot of these guys. I have the, the Weston family is really close to me, and they were all part of that crew before. And the other guy that was a part of that was Benil Dariush. And a lot of people don't know this, but Benil actually took uh, – he, he, I think he's the only guy in the world to do this – take – actually, maybe not now because there's so many new crops of Brazilians and everything. But he was the only guy to take uh, gold medals in both Nogi and Gi at the world championships at every single belt level except for black. So I think brown belt, he took double gold, gi, no gi, purple, same thing. His level is very high. Um, you know, a match with Crone Gracie is probably the, the tip of the iceberg with, with how good his grappling is. And on the other side of things, it's funny, when I started this, we were talking about my last name a minute ago too. And that's actually uh, 
Charles Oliveira has always been one of my favorite fighters because our last names were similar. I always wanted to fight like him. I wanted to have Muay Thai like him and Jiu-Jitsu like him and be attacking like crazy. So he's always been one of my favorite fighters. But even me, I'm realistic enough to know where his faults are, right? I knew Islam was going to run through him. I didn't even see a submission, but I just knew it wouldn't really be a close competitive fight at all. Um, this fight, I think, gets a lot tougher, and I think it's it's the styles that's going to make a huge difference. For years and years, I've been worried about Benil Dariush, uh, his stand-up, actually, right? He's touted as this amazing Muay Thai guy and, you know, working with King's MMA, but fight after fight, we see him getting chinned. I see him being slow, see him leaving a lot of openings, and now we're, we're banking on him because of an amazing performance against uh, Gamrot, but Gamrot's not an amazing striker, right? He's a pace and pressure guy, a wrestling guy. Um, the one thing about Charles Oliveira is, man, he really is a, an excellent striker. His Muay Thai is, is picture perfect, right? If you would teach it in the gym, he checks leg kicks. Uh, he throws a lot of low kicks, long straight punches. Even his hooks are incredible, right? He, he really does have excellent Muay Thai. Um, honestly, I think this fight is probably lined appropriately. I think you have the grappling upside for Benil Dariush on, uh, in my eyes. I think he can neutralize a lot of the stuff that Charles does. And we see this in jiu-jitsu a lot, right? You got the purple belt guys who attack nonstop, right? They're always, it's, we call it purple belt jiu-jitsu. We're just nonstop attacking every submission that you can find. Fuck it if it works. Fuck it if it doesn't. I'm just going to try it, right? And then you have high-level black belt jiu-jitsu, which is actually a lot slower, a lot more calm, a lot more isolated, right? It's, it's making sure I'm always controlling the hips. I'm always controlling everything. And it's a slow grind. I think that's what Benil does a lot better than Charles, right? Charles is that purple belt, nonstop attacking jiu-jitsu, whereas Benil's just, it's clean, it's pressure. It's real quick, real quick. Uh, so, sorry to cut you off. Before any trolls were like, what do you mean Charles is a purple belt? Guys, he's talking about the approach. He didn't actually call Dubronx a purple belt. Just got to clear that no, up no, no. before some yeah. idiot you know, tries to shit on you. Well, when he was setting records for the submissions, he was a purple belt. When he when he got to the UFC, right, he he did the uh, the Dobronx choke on uh, Hatsuhioki. He was a purple belt at the time. He's since become a black belt, so I understand. But I'm saying his style has never uh, really gone a different way because he's always been an MMA, so he's always attacking, which does make him dangerous. Um, I, I think honestly, this is who can uh, who can execute the game plan first. It's does uh, does Charles find the chin of Benil first, or does Benil just grind him out and you know, if I'm looking at this from a realistic perspective, I think uh, Benil's path to victory is a lot more rigorous than Charles is, right? Charles can get mopped up for two rounds, and the third round he starts back up on the feet, and he can tag Benil at any time. But Benil's going to have to mind his P's and Q's on the ground. He's going to have to grind him out. He's going to have to ride him out for three rounds. Um, you know, a lot's made of Charles' chin, which I could see that too. Um, but man, I think if they're, if they're standing up, then it's a coin toss. Who's going to get there first. And I think Charles striking is actually a little bit more crisp than, uh, than Benil's. So uh, I, I would say Benil's going to win. I think the line is very appropriate. It's a very coin toss fight. Um, but I, I'll go Benil. I mean, I mean, here's the pushback. Look, offensively speaking, I think that both of them are great standing. Um, you know, with Charles Oliveira, it's just, I mean, I honestly kind of see similarities to a jujitsu approach to a standing approach. I mean, nonstop flying knees in your face, all kinds of techniques from the clinch, from distance, <laughs> whatever the case may be. He's long. But defensively speaking, I mean, you mentioned how Benil's been chinned, and that's facts. I can't argue with that. But let's not sit here and act like Dubronx hasn't been dropped his last three fights in a row. Oh, we have, and the fight prior against Chandler, he was also hurt in that fight. So, Dubrox gets hurt in pretty much 
all not every fight but almost nah, pretty close and uh dariush he's a guy like i was at his ufc debut um in atlanta against charlie brenneman and it was the first fight of the night so no one was there so when you heard that shot he's a southpaw so it was a left-hand shot when you heard that left-hand shot man i mean it echoed across the Gwinnett arena shit was insane and that's when i first took note you know he had that setback against dare you against uh ramsey nijam as a big favorite then he goes on his first ufc win streak and i mean the things i love in the stand-up from benil dariush obviously as a southpaw you know that that liver kick is open all day and that's one thing that those kings mma guys really pride themselves on and if you go back to this fight between uh benny and james vick yeah everyone remembers the knockout of course but prior to the knockout you should hear the sound of those kicks that benny was landing on james vick this was at ufc 199 uh, in california i was at that event and then his very next fight he outstrikes a very technical guy in rashid magomedov who i don't know if you remember but at the time Rashid Magomedov was all the talk and all the rave. And I think he might have even been 19 and 0 or 19 and 1 or some crazy shit like that when he fought uh Benil. And that was a good upset for Benil. And it was in Mexico elevation as well. Then you know he had that unfortunate flying knee knockout loss to Edson, where he was putting it on Edson, man, uh throughout that fight until he got caught with that flying knee. You know, had some ups and downs. You, you all good there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, you know, even the Dunham fight, I, I think uh, something that Benil's had to kind of work on is the guy goes balls to the wall to the point where he will fatigue himself. It's not a matter of Benil not running his miles or skipping his strength and conditioning uh, sessions. It's a, a matter of here's the funny thing when you hear Benil talk, the nicest guy, a good Christian, a father of this or that. But when you see him fight, the guy is an absolute killer and word on the street is like this dude was like getting kicked out of multiple schools in high school because he was beating people up like getting into fights all the time which is crazy because you hear him talk like i said he's the nicest nicest christian guy you've ever you've ever heard but when you see him in that octagon the guy's a straight killer and i think that he's had to make some adjustments and that being said i mean there's still been some sketchy moments here and there whether it was the close fight or you know whatever the case may be the dober fight um but man, he's been making it work. He's been figuring things out and he can also grind someone out. He doesn't just have to bang. He can grind someone out. I mean, we saw the Gamrot fight. I mean, that fucking first round, those scrambles they had where, you know, Benny's starting to go inverted and, you know, attacking with knee bars against a guy like Gamrot, which one doesn't simply do. That was absolutely nuts. So and CDF saw- fight, that was a grind. This, both CDF fights were insane. The Chiago Moises fight, you know, grinds him out for three straight rounds. That's a good black belt as well. So he's got different approaches. Um, he, here's one thing I wanted to talk to you about with, with Dubronx, and I want your opinion on this because prior to Dubronx on that incredible win streak that got him to the title, a lot of people question if he had kind of those front running traits, right? Where he'll run you through that jujitsu series, you know, like he did the Paul Felder, you know, the Dars, the Anaconda, the guillotine, take your back, do all these things. But when they don't work kind of mentally, it's like, man, what do I have to do to this guy? And that's where people would be able to take over, you know, later on in the fight. And a lot of people thought that he got past that because you saw a fight he had against like David Tamor, where he got dropped early in the fight. And, um, you know, came back and won. And he's been getting dropped in a lot of these fights and coming back and winning. But the argument I made I made in the Islam fight was like, look, when, you know, Poirier and Gaethje and all these guys and Tamor dropped Dubronx, 
they ha- they wanted no part of following him into his guard because they're so worried about what's coming back, and rightfully so. I mean, the guy has the most submissions in UFC history, right? But I said when Islam drops him, he's going to have zero fear going into the guard of Dubronx. Um, so two things I want to say here. One, I think that if Benil drops Charles, yeah, maybe he he'll do what Poirier and Gaethje did, you know, make him get back up. But I think Benil has the balls to get into the guard of Charles Oliveira. And then the other point I want to make, and I know this is, this is a lot for you to, to digest because I'm saying a lot of things. So back to the whole, is Charles a front runner or not? So the Islam choke, it didn't seem like there was much resistance, but to Islam's credit, man, when he fought Drew Dober, Dober tapped the fucking shoulder pressure. So maybe Islam's squeeze and his pressure is just something different. Tell me your thoughts on this. Yeah, that, that's a twofold submission. You, you could see that coming. Yes, he's got an incredible squeeze and incredible windup, and his position and technique was perfect. Um, but a lot of that, too, was, was wanting to get out, right? You're in a world championship fight. Like, you could go out if you wanted to. Right. You, you could go to sleep. There's no harm, no foul. You're going to be back up in a second. It's not going to hurt you or, or damage your career. Um, but yeah, I think he was front running in that fight. And honestly, look at his record, right? Everybody that he's fought, Clay Guida, come on. Chris Yagos, no gas, not as good at jiu-jitsu, right? A lot of these guys, he's just so much better than just kind of like we were talking about with the, uh, the Nunez stuff. I mean, think about Oliveira was fighting uh, Frankie Edgar early on in his career, like when Frankie was Frankie. And having close fights. And now he's fighting these older guys with not as good of jiu-jitsu. I just think the skill gap was, uh, was so giant there that as soon as his stuff didn't work, yeah, he, he, he's on his way out. Um, sorry, what was your first question? I don't remember. But the, po- the two points were basically when someone drops Charles, like when Poirier and Gaethje did, you know, oh, they, yeah. they wanted no part of following him down to his, his guard, whereas Islam had no issue with that. I don't think Benil will have an issue with that. And yeah. the second one was, well, should we give Charles a pass for the Islam fight? Because we saw Dober tap the fucking shoulder pressure. Maybe Islam's just it just feels different when he's in there. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. Yeah, I think 100% it does feel different with Islam. But I, I agree with you. I don't think that uh, Benny's going to have any issue going down with him. I actually think he's going to willfully go down with him to show, hey, look, I am the better grappler. It's not close. I'm not afraid of this, right? And we've seen that a lot of times. Um, I, I think that, uh, that Benny will be comfortable. So as far as the pick, listen, man, this is truly a fight that could go either way. Like, I mean, like if they run it 10 times, you're not going to get the same outcome every time. Either guy can finish either guy. I think uh, Benil's got more of a chance of winning a decision here. The reason I'm picking Benil is because I think that right now the momentum's on his side. There's been the trend of Charles getting dropped every single fight. And like I mentioned to you, my big argument for Islam, you know, these other guys didn't want to follow him down. Benil will follow him down. But, of course, I'm not discounting the possibility of Benil getting hurt, too. We've seen him hurt multiple times. We've seen him knocked out before. And we know, you know, how offensively potent Charles Dubronx is. So you can't write off any of those possibilities. The reason I'm picking Benil is because the momentum's on his side. I think right now simply is time. And how we were talking about how, you know, certain people aren't going to be denied. I mean, this guy's paid his dues to a point where it's time for you to get your title shot, kid. So I'm going to go with Benil Dariush to defeat, you know, the all-time finish leader, the all-time submission leader, just all the records Charles has, all, all due respect to a, a super stud. But I'm going to go with Benny. I think it's his time right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. I'm with you. So featured bout in the welterweight division, we got Mike Malott. He's 9-1-1, one, one, taking on Adam Fugit, who's 9-3. and three. 
Currently, they got it. Mike Malott, minus 205. The comeback on Adam Fugitz, plus 175. I mean, I got to keep it 100 with you, man, as always. I mean, so I've lost money fading Malott his first two UFC fights. I lost money fading Fugit his last fight uh, with Japanese Connor. But here's my thing with Malott, man. It's like he's a great athlete. He's got great size for the weight class. That I cannot debate. And also, we're on the street. His, his jiu-jitsu ain't half bad either. But man, there's certain things like when people are hyping this guy up to be a potential future top 15 prospect. And I pride myself on my ability to scout, you know, prospects and guys that I think are going to go far one day. Y'all know the examples I'd mentioned. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, beat a dead horse talking about Bilal and Jamal and all these guys. But bottom line is I don't see him a lot anywhere near that. I don't think he's a future top 15 guy, but I don't want to be that guy who keeps like downplaying, you know, someone's success or or anything like that because he's been doing what he's got to do, man. He's been finishing these guys accordingly. But man, there's so many openings in the in betweens, the striking defense. What happens if a fight gets extended? Another interesting thing: this is a former 145er. Now he's at 170. I'm not going to hold that against him because he looks like a pretty fucking big 170. But it's like kind of it's kind of an interesting thing here. So. I'm not sold on Malat, but what I am sold on is I think he's a way better athlete than Fugit. I think he might have more first-round finishing upside, and I'm not quite ready to say that if the fight gets extended that he'll necessarily fall apart just because I don't have proof of that, but it wouldn't surprise me either. Fugit, less athletic, but I mean, he's, you know you know what's interesting about Fugit? He's only 9-3, and three, but I kind of view him like the vet in this matchup right whereas i kind of view Malat as the prospect and fugit he's only got a nine and three record like that's not like a, that season of a vet like but he is the 34 year old he's kind of the older guy one interesting thing he's got a 77 inch reach you don't often see that in the welterweight division so deceptively long arms but he's more of a kicker um and a wrestler whereas Malat. I say kicker Malat. So his UFC debut, you saw the hands against Gall. You also saw him get you also saw him get tagged up against Gall. But in the next fight against Johan, so going in that fight, you know, it was the two Canadian prospects show, uh, you know, it was a showdown. Who's gonna be the emerging Canadian prospect? And Malat shut down Johan in a way where it made it look like Johan has no business in the UFC. And it was actually a kicking approach that uh, Johan Malott, has no business in the UFC. I mean, here's the thing about Johan. On his regional, he was knocking dudes out. He was like a Canadian Matt Brown, right? Comes into the UFC, has a great first round against Gabe Green. And once Gabe Green weathered that storm and hit him with that body shot, Johan was never the same. The next fight against Darian Weeks, he lands like 15 to 20 strikes, which is nothing. Terrible fight. And then the next fight against Malat, like, dude looked frozen, deer in the headlights. But I got to point this out. People only remember the submission, which again, back to the Islam and Charles talk, there's questions about, you know, was that submission really locked in or was Johan, you know, did he have enough? But it was the kicking approach of Mike Malat that had Johan backing up the entire time, that had his hands dropping, that had him not ready um, for what was going to come next. And as a result, he subsequently got finished shortly after. So, I do give him a lot, a lot of credit for that performance, but I still think there's a lot of openings in his game that can be capitalized upon. Yeah, you and me think the same way on a lot of different fights, and uh, Malat is one that I've had my eye on for a long time. Now, when the lines came out, I, I played Fugit at plus 277, something like that. I this just fight? thought the line was – yeah, yeah, this line. This okay. Fight. I just thought the line was crazy, crazy wide, and just like you, I lost money fading Fugit. 
I've lost money fading uh, fading Mike Ballot. And you're <laughs> right. There, there is no evidence to tell us that he falls off a cliff uh, in round two. And I think that seems to be the narrative this week is like, oh, well, what happens when the fight gets extended? The only fight that we've seen, he, he, he went split with a six and eight or whatever. But he's come a long way. I mean, that was a long time ago, right? He's been training. Uh, his style really – his style is not some crazy, you know, uh, gas dependent style. It's not like he's swinging with everything he has on every punch. He's not wrestling like Raul Rosas, where you know he's going to burn himself out. He doesn't fight like Terrence McKinney. You're right. He's very calm. He's very calculated. He went with the kicking approach. The things I'm interested in in this fight is actually to see his wrestling. Um, one thing he did against Johan. Now, you may have been impressed by Johan's regional tape. I was the complete opposite. I think his regional tape is amongst the worst it's when i say impressed let's just put it this way he was actually fighting these guys he was actually getting finishes whereas his last two ufc fights like dude threw like less than 20 strikes you know what i'm saying like it's like he wasn't even fighting these last fights whereas yeah it might have looked ugly on his regionals but at least he was going for it. at least he was aggressive at least you saw some fight in him yeah. So, I mean, one thing that you'll find in, in Johan's regional tape is his takedown defense is awful. So then Mike Malott pushes him against the cage, right? And he, I actually love that takedown where you scoop the leg and then you trip it out, but he almost used it as like a, a body lock, right? It, it wasn't so much the leg trip like we see from the, uh, from the Daniel Gracie guys like Sabatini and Sean Brady. It was more like he did it and then got to a high body lock and then just kind of pushed him over. Uh, and Johan's got horrible takedown defense, right? So do I rate his wrestling high because he took him down and it was something kind of cool, but kind of not, not really. I don't know where he, where he is with that. Right. And the one thing about Fugit is he doesn't go away. He's, he's in there. He's high volume. He's front kicks. He's wrestling. Um, I don't think his jiu-jitsu is going to be in any world close to Mike Malott. Right. Like we said, we've heard around the gym, Mike Malott's jiu-jitsu is solid. And the only evidence you need with that is the, the guillotine against Shimon. That was one of the most beautiful guillotines I've ever seen in my life. Right. Rewrapped it. It was gorgeous. Um, and I think this is a tee up spot for Malat to get a win here. Um, I played a huge number on Fugit just cause I thought the line was wide. I think Malat's still going to find a way to win somehow. I just, I, I wouldn't parlay it. I, I wouldn't play it heavy. Um, Malat's a, a, a fade waiting to happen. It's, it's going to come sooner or later. I just don't know if it's this fight. I, I, I'm going to go Malat, um, with almost zero faith. No, I feel you. I mean, pure pick, Malat, we understand what's happening here, but I mean, I think if I were to bet this fight, it would be Fugit, you know? Um, but man, I'm telling you right now, this Mike Malat fade, when it finally happens, it is going to be so glorious. We're going to get incredible odds, and I, he's going to be exposed. And there's nothing against the guy. I really don't have anything against him. It's just I see all these openings <laughs> that, you know, you know, you, you brought up Shimon, bro. Shimon is soft, bro. And that's no disrespect, but like, I'm trying uh, to set up, my heart. It'd be my, it'd be a dream to set up with some of my guys with a Shimon fight. Like, did you see Shimon's last fight where uh, he got that DQ in? Yeah, but he was beating his ass, man. It, but, but you want, I mean, he was, as soon as that shit happened, it was uh Aljo, uh, Peter one all over again, man. It was, it was pretty embarrassing, man. Um, so, but Shimon is like, we're not going to talk about Shimon forever. He's got some physical attributes. He's a big boy, but I just don't think he's yeah. got that. I don't think he's got that dog in him. I think the only guy, you know, the only, the only guy on that radar from that, that part of the world that, you know, you know, can maybe be something is Natan. Uh, I, I don't see Shimon. If Shimon makes it to the USC, it's an insta fade. 
Really? Okay. I think he's really talented. I think that kid's really, really talented. I just uh, really he got so, Oh, I think he's so talented, and everything I hear, he's so talented. But, but he's just but got this some, uh, and this. Yeah, yeah. He's got some management issues. He doesn't understand how to use his energy, and I, I attribute that a little bit to his age. So, according to Pepe, this is the Malat fade spot. And let me tell you this, Pepe. If this is the Malat fade spot, and I bet on Mickey Gall and on Johan, and I pass here, and Malat gets exposed like I think he's going to at some point, I'm going to be so pissed off that I passed. I'll tell you that right now. So maybe on principle, I need to go out there and do it because it's like this. I'm all about learning from my mistakes. And, you know, you're not going to be right about every prospect and you don't want to be arrogant and this and that. But when I went back this week and watched the Malat tape, I still saw the same holes that I've been seeing this entire time. And I'm like, man, someone is going to expose him quick. I mean, someone is going to expose him soon, rather. Um, is Fugit the guy? <laughs> Fugit, like I said, Fugit's a bit on the slower side. But let me tell you this. Fugit's a guy that they've only been feeding to prospects. He is the ultimate prospect tester. UFC debut, Michael Morales. And I actually thought that he showed a lot of holes in Morales' game when Morales got matched up against Renat Fakradinov, that like 20 and 2 Russian. The fight got canceled, but when you know they got matched up, Renat was only like minus 140. Bro, I was gonna fucking hammer that because I, I think Michael Morales is an incredible athlete and a great talent, but I think he's green and raw and has a lot of work to do. And if you get Gave him an honest fight. So there's that. Then they give him Japanese Connor. So now they're giving him the top Canadian prospect. So Fugit's the ultimate uh, prospect tester. He was used as a feeder even before uh, before the UFC also. He was, he, they gave him to Solomon Renfro yeah. for him to get knocked out, and he beat the hell out of Solomon. Yeah, both guys fought Solomon, and Solomon was fucking teeing off on Mike Malat, man. Mike Malat found that opportunistic finish. Again, did you see the Malat and uh, Renfro fight? Yeah, I did. Dude, Renfro was fucking like walking him down, cracking him, dropping to a knee. It was like, it was like, holy shit. Whereas Fugit, Fugit like threw like 10 kicks in a row and then caught him with a nice shot. It was, it was dope. Here's my thing about this fight. Um, I, I think Pepe wants to see everybody lose money. He's like his friend Evan the other day who was going on and on about uh, who's the guy that fought Chase Hooper, like couldn't stop talking about him. Fiore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pepe wants to see people lose money on this fight. And I got a big plus number just for value. But um, the, the thing that uh, Fugit excels at is when people want to kill him. People know that he's the feeder. They know they need to get him out of there early. They're going to go for the kill. They're going to go for that kill shot, right? And the more that people try to pressure him and fight him, the more that he excels because he's game, because he's got a chin, because he's got more volume than guys, right? That's when he excels. Malat showed a lot of patience in that last fight, right? When you're talking about Johan and the kicks, he showed yeah. patience. So now we're just two guys standing at range throwing kicks at each other. I think the fight is going to just be very different than, than past Fugit fights. And it's unfortunate because I would love to see Fugit win here, but I think the style of fighting is going to make this one a lot different. Yeah, so my pure pick is Malat, but if I were to bet this fight, if I decide to, I'll take a one or two unit shot on Fugit to see if this is the time. Because like I told you, man, if this is the time and I pass, I'm going to be very, very pissed off. But we'll see what happens. I mean, we know what the UFC are trying to do here, but that doesn't always, I mean, doesn't always go their way when they try those things. And uh, I guess I got 500 on uh, Fugit at 277. Nice. I didn't even know he was in the, you know, in that range. So that's great. You did, hey, you did your job. You can even, you know, guarantee yourself that a profit. Was a guaranteed bet. Yeah. I won. Yeah. Exactly. Guarantee yourself a profit at the end of the day. If you can do that, why not? You know, fuck all the other bullshit. All right. 
Next up in the featherweight division, we got Dan Ige. He's 16 and 6, taking down Nate the Train Landwehr, who's 17 and 4. <laughs> Currently, they got it. Dan Ige minus 250. The comeback on Nate Landwehr is plus 210. So I'm not in the business of laying minus 250 on Dan Ige personally, but I do have a lot of respect for him. I mean, he's another guy who knows what it means to have a good win streak inside the octagon at one point. Um, you know, he, he's a banger. He can hit hard. You know, he's got multiple knockdowns on the mat um, while he's fresh. He's pretty slick there, too. The issue I've had with Ige throughout the years is for whatever reason, there was like a consistent stretch there where he would lose round two of every single fight he'd be in. Um, like whether we're talking about the Bectic fight, the Kevin Aguilar fight. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. The, maybe the Jordan Griffin fight, too. It's been so long. I haven't seen that fight in a while. The Edson Barboza fight. So like. There's been a lot of like, you know, these fights where like he'll he'll start off strong, really fade in that second round. And then either he gets that second win or he doesn't. Um, and with Nate the train, that's not the guy you want to fatigue against late in the fight. But let me say this. Nate the train standing defense. man. I mean, in that last fight against Lingo, when I rewatched the Lingo fight, I was like, oh, my God, like someone is going to floor Nate the train again. I mean, look, as a fan, how can you not love Nate the train? How can you not root for him? And not just because of, you know, like when he was, you know, when he was uh, punching Elkins, you know, he's got his hands down. He's like, Dana, you know, all that stuff or even, you know, his post fight interviews and his exciting finishes and all that. But prior to the UFC, this is a guy that went to Russia, fought Russians, won a belt in Russia and was doing his thing over there, too. So this is a seasoned vet. He's been around the block. And now's his time to finally break into the top 15. So is he ready to do that? Basically, I think that. Ige does have a lot of KO potential in this fight, especially in the first, you know, the first seven minutes. But I think if if, if somehow Nate can hang on, man, I think that he's live the later the fight goes. You're, you're counting on that uh, Hawaiian cardio, huh? Yeah, but man, there there's the Hawaiian cardio, but the Hawaiian chin is there too. Ige's got a fucking blockhead, man. I guess I meant that in the opposite way. Like wines have the worst cardio ever. No, I, I know what you meant. Like, like, okay, like, okay. like, like, Ige fades, but like, he's really hard to put away. I, I, it's weird. I, I know that you're right, but I feel like I think Ige doesn't really f fade. Like, maybe he takes some moments off, admires his work, or maybe he's trying to soup up for a big third round. But uh, here's something that's really interesting. Okay. Um, we had Korean zombie in camp. First of all, Korean zombie, Santino DeFranco black belt. Uh, only me and Casey Tanner are Santino DeFranco brown belts. We're only three in the world that are uh, belted under Santino. Uh, very good honor. But, you know, we had him here for the Ige fight, right? We had Korean zombie. And I guess after the fight was over, uh, zombie told Santino, he goes, that guy is the hardest hitter I've ever fought in my entire career. And if you watch the fight, it wasn't a close fight particularly, right? It, it was pretty, pretty much domination from Zombie. He goes, that is the hardest hitter I've ever fought in my entire life. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. Um, now he's going against Nate Detrain, who, much like Oliveira, gets chinned almost every single fight, right? Then a lot of times relies on his grappling. I think that Ige is uh, too slick of a grappler to fall into the same traps that, you know, that uh, Nate Detrain's doing to a Gath Ludovic and a, uh, a shitty Austin Lingo. I don't think this fight's going to be particularly close. You're right. His striking defense is horrible. He's just kind of game. He's always in the pocket. He's willing to fight. And he kind of Homer Simpson's a lot of guys. And I don't think Ige is the one to, uh, that he's going to do that to. I love Nate more than anybody. I would love to see him win here. But uh, I just see a, 
an, an Ige KO, especially with how tight Ige's boxing is. I mean, watching his film is beautiful <laughs> because everything is so crisp, so tight, comes back to his face. I mean, he is a clean, clean fighter. So for me, it's an Ige KO here. I mean, that's kind of what I see happening. <laughs> However, if y'all are live betters and y'all see that Nate's able to survive these shots and that Ige is starting to fatigue a bit, Maybe that's the spot where you're going to get an even better line on Nate to take over down the stretch. Uh, the reason I most likely don't want to get involved early is because I do think that, man, like I said, when I was watching that Lingo fight, I was like, oh, my God, Nate. Like, like I was like, Jesus Christ. You know, and that's Lingo. And no disrespect to Lingo at all. but He's got I mean, good combos. He's got good boxing. But, but but Lingo's not a top 15 guy. Like, he's not there yet, you know? Maybe one day, maybe not. But I'm just saying, nah. you know, this is a completely different level. This is like, like I said, Ige, Ige knows what it means to have a six or seven fight win streak in the UFC, knows what it means to be a ranked guy, knows what it means to have main events, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So just a different level of experience. Um, yeah, I mean, I do see that opening for the KO being there. I'm just saying, if this guy expends all his energy trying to get him out of there and can't, that's where Landwer can take over late second round, third round, make it make it a dogfight. So that's Look how what patient I think. he was with Damon Jackson, though, right? He just kind of stalked him down, uh, clean pockets, or I mean, uh, clean punches when he was ready to engage. That's the thing I like to look for is the patience, right? He was not going all out like you, you know, swinging bombs like he has on a lot of guys. He was just patient, cut off the cage, counter wrestled. I think he he put together a good fight, and I think maybe this fight's not going to be as exciting as people think that it might be. Two guys standing at range being patient. Oh, so you, so you don't think EA is going to knock him out? No, I do think he's going to knock him out, right? Because there are going to be times they have to engage. But, you know, I, I don't think Ige is just going to be rushing in, throwing overhands. And I, I think that Nate, he likes to see a lot of things first, right? That's why he looks kind of slow to start and gets tagged up a lot because he likes to kind of see and analyze. And a lot of times he waits until guys get tired. So um, I, I guess I still see a knockout, but it's not going to be uh, – just a, a, a brawl, like a Gaethje Chandler brawl. Yeah, look, my pure pick is Ige for the for the reasons we mentioned. However, um, this is one where if certain things happen and this fight does get extended and I'm not liking what I'm seeing from Ige and I start to feel like Landwehr starting <laughs> to turn it up, possibly a live entry, but before the fact, the pick is Ige for me uh, for the reasons we mentioned. I mean, especially that lingo fight. Like, like, like I said, bro, when I was watching that, I was like, I was like, oh my God, Nate. Like, and, and I was actually at a concert that night. So I knew the result of the fight. So when I went back the next day to, to rewatch it, uh, I was like, oh shit. So, so lingo is going to knock him out. And I had already known that Nate tapped him out. That's how like that <laughs> some of the standup exchanges were. Right. So yeah, a better guy is definitely going to capitalize. And let me, let me say this though. I feel like Nate Landwer could be undefeated in the UFC. And let me explain what I mean. No, I am not calling those knockout losses, early stoppages, or any shit like that. But what I am saying, guys, is if Nate Landwer and Herbert Burns ran it back, who you got? I got Nate Landwer. Oh, jeez. Yeah. If Nate Landwer and Julian Arosa ran it back, who you got? I got Nate Landwer. <laughs> so I think, um, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. You know, I get why you're iffy about it, but I think right now, it would be the perfect time for him to catch uh, Julian if they ever ran it back. Um, so it was just one of those things of like, you know, man, if these guys fight 10 times, that whole that whole talk. But yeah, bottom yeah. line, that's a relevant talk. I just wanted to bring that up. But uh, yeah, I I'm going to go Ige here. But let let's see what happens and pay close attention to the live betting, possibly in this spot. 
Now, next up, kicking off the main card in the middleweight division, we got Eric, your boy, Anders. He's 15 and 7, taking on Mark Andre Barrio, who's 15 and 6. Currently, they got it. Eric, or they got it. Mark Andre, minus 125. The comeback on Eric is plus 105. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Did Eric do this camp at fight ready with y'all? Nope. He is gone, gone, gone. So, do you know where he did this camp? I think he did a cross between the MMA lab and uh, Soul Fighters where uh, where Sean O'Malley trains. Oh, so he went MMA lab. So that means that, uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got you. I got you. Damn, I'm sorry to hear that. Was, was, did he take? Did he take the knife and? Uh... Yeah, you know what? It, it just hurt my feelings <laughs> because uh, I, I'll say this. First of all, the night that I won, you know, oh, sorry, the the big money. Eric was actually supposed to. Uh, to put get an account set up and I was going to give him all the picks. He would have made so much money. It was crazy. And he just was lazy to hit me up. So I, I don't feel bad there. He, he would have been a millionaire too. Um, but uh, the, the one thing that broke my heart is Santino does a lot for these guys, right? We saw this with the Jakar close situation does a lot for these guys game plans for them. Even when they're not at fight ready, right? He'll still sit down, watch film, say, Hey, here's what I think you need to do. He really cares for all of his fighters and uh, Jakar to go out the way that he did and start calling out the fight ready guys and saying, fuck the coaches broke my heart because Santino has been nothing but good to him and good to Courtney Casey. Um, and then Eric Anders leaves and unfollows all the uh, coaches on, on Instagram and Santino reaches out to him, Merry Christmas and nothing back. And it just kind of hurts my heart. Like, Look at his progression since he had been at fight ready. Look at the work that had been put in. He looked like a new fighter, right? When he beat the shit out of Dawkins. Um, just hurts my heart. Santino doesn't deserve that. It hurts my feelings too, because I had a similar experience. Uh, Eric was a guy that I interviewed on half the battle before he was even in the UFC, back when he was in LFA. Um, developed like almost like a friendship. I mean, he took me out to dinner like when he was in Atlanta once. We were super cool. Uh, he came into my gym and trained um, before the Muniz fight. And I made a tweet after the Muniz fight <laughs> that I think he didn't like, but it wasn't like meant to be bad. So you know how like Muniz had a disgusting arm bar on Eric, right? And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and Eric tapped. So I tweeted that like, hey, I'm glad that Eric tapped instead of, you know, letting his arm break because now he can come back, you know, first quarter of next year and, you know, get paid again and get to work instead of sitting out for a whole year. He didn't like that because he viewed it like I was saying, I'm happy he lost. No, I'm not happy he lost. I'm happy that instead of getting your arm broken, you're able to fight again in a few months and be able to feed your family. Like, that's what I was saying. But, you know, I think, you know, when you're coming off a loss, you're disappointed. You read a couple words. You're like, oh, my God, this guy doesn't have my back or something. And it's like that wasn't the case. So, yeah. So when I reached out to him to clarify that, he didn't respond to me either. So I was bummed. But Eric, much love, man. <laughs> like, you know, you're still, <laughs> you know, you're still uh, my boy, your boy. So I hope that uh, we can put that behind us at some point. But I agree with you. He looked incredible against Dawkins. And people can say head clash, whatever. He was whooping his ass up until all that shit. And let me say this, too. After the, the Muniz fight, you know, I think he went on Rogan talking about how, like, look, I understand I'm at the twilight of my career. I understand I only have a few more. But, man, I thought he looked good against the Iron Turtle. You know, some people thought he might have got that fight. Some people thought he might have got robbed. But regardless of the result, I thought he put up a valiant effort against the Iron Turtle, uh, Jung Young Park. And then the fight against Dacus, I mean, he beat the living shit out of Dacus. So, um, I don't see necessarily a decline. Um, and then with Barrio, he's one of these guys that 
So the early going, it looks ugly. It looks slow. He's getting pieced up. It's kind of like, oh, my God. But if you gas out against Barrio and he gets you in that clinch, you know about those nasty uppercuts like in the clinch that he's got. And um, he's one of these guys, like I said, he will put the volume on you down the stretch if you fade. But I'm not necessarily convinced uh, Anders fades. But at the same time, he's not at fight ready with that elite strength and conditioning program that y'all have i don't know what he's been doing but but the bottom line is i see this being a super super close fight i kind of think mark andre might might have a little bit more volume whereas eric might have a little bit better defense um eric's probably a bit more physical andre might be a little bit faster which is kind of funny to say about someone like andre who's a bit on the slower side um and then I'm not sure what the Canadian judges are like. I have no idea. We haven't been to Canada in years, and it's not like we're bringing in guys from the Nevada State Athletic Commission to judge, who all fucking suck too. But I don't know what the Canadian judges are like. So this is one of those fights where I think it's going to be one-to-one going in that third round. Who wants it more? Who has the better optics and visuals for the judges? I'll trends in Florida. But let's say Barry Alt's old old gym in Canada. I have no idea. But I'm going to go with Eric, your boy, Anders, just because I think it could be a, a coin flip type fight. Could be. Um, I, I wouldn't. I, I see some of the comments here that Anders' favorite spot on the card. I wouldn't make him your favorite spot. No, because um, you could be disappointed badly when he loses a split. Yeah, there's some stuff going on. I, I don't want to say a lot on this fight. Um, I wouldn't make him your favorite spot if you care about your money. Um, I, I am so biased because I love Mab. He's like one of my favorite fighters and exactly what you talk about those clinch punches. I tried to, uh, in my last camp for my fight, I tried to make that a part of my whole game, right. And sparring every day, I was just hockey punching people, right. That was my whole thing was clinch hockey punch, take down, submit. That was it. I, I love Mab. I love his style. Um, you know, watching back his recent fights, he's a lot more sloppy than I had ever remembered, but watching the Marquez fight, when I was watching it live, he looked horrible to me. Everything was such a loopy punch. It was so wide. And then watching it back, it's just kind of how he holds his hands. He still has a really snappy, really clean jab. It just comes from such a weird angle. Now he leaves his body wide open, right? If you got a really experienced kickbox in there, they would tear up his body. And I think too much is made about his cardio. I don't think it's nearly what people think that it is. Um, in he's one of these guys. In terms of it's better or worse than people think? It's way worse. I mean, every time they go on the broadcast, they talk about how good his cardio is. Is it really that good? Do you really think it's, it's that amazing? Or is it that he's willing to drag guys into deep water and they fade before he does? That's, that's what we talk about all the time. You know, we have a guy, JSP, um, uh, uh, Jonathan Pierce, right? Yeah. And that's what Santino always says about him is that his cardio is not otherworldly. It's good, but it's not otherworldly. But he's willing to drag guys into such deep waters that they're going to fade before he does, and he's comfortable there. He's okay drowning a little bit. Um, I, I think that's how Mab goes. It's hard to find an edge on this fight if you watch the film, but uh, I, I'm going to go Mab on this one. Okay. Now, Next up in the middleweight division as well, we got Nasruddin Imavov, who's 12 and 4, taking on Chris Curtis, who's 30 and 10. Currently, they got it. Nasruddin Imavov minus 150. The comeback on Chris Curtis is around plus 125. This is a tough one for me to call, and I'll tell you why, man, because it's like we know kind of what we're getting from Chris Curtis, but we kind of don't know how his opponent's going to approach <laughs> it. Type ordeal. Like, if you. Uh, kind of just stand on the outside. I feel like Chris Curtis is there to be, 
you know, out-volumed, right? Whereas if you want to stand in the pocket and bang with him, that's where he does his best work. Um, and what's funny is that Chris Curtis is a guy that, like, man, back in his, like, regional days, I don't know if you saw his fight against Bilal or even past that when he fought, you know, on the PFL. I thought that this was a dude that was never going to make it to the UFC. I thought this was a dude that never had a chance that was just going to be that regional fighter that, you know, just couldn't quite get over the hump. And boy, did he get over the hump. I mean, the shit he's been doing in the UFC, I know he's lost a few here and there, but he got some very, very credentialed wins. Brendan Allen, who's about to fight, you know, what was going to fight in the main event against Hermanson, but is fighting uh, Bruno Blindado instead, you know, knocked out Phil Haas, you know, as a big underdog, the Rodolfo Vieira fight, the Joaquin Buckley fight, even the Gastelum fight. I thought he had a great fight with Gastelum. So, he, so he's been doing his thing. It's just that, can Nasserdine follow the blueprint to beat this guy? Because there is an established blueprint to beat him. You don't, you know, fucking pocket box with Chris Curtis. You keep him on the outside. You outvolume him. You frustrate him, and you you circle and you move. Is is Imavov going to do what's required here? Oh, you're asking me. I I think this is a bad fight for uh, Imavov. I I really think it's a bad fight. Maybe I'm a little bit biased towards Chris Curtis too. I think Chris Curtis has some of the best boxing. Uh, in the UFC, just the way that he rolls punches, the way that he slips, the way that he counters. Uh, most people's problem with him is exactly what you're talking about, right? Low, low volume, but he's just an excellent counter puncher. Uh, you, you don't want to talk, you know, everyone thinks it's just so easy to beat him because of the Hermanson fight. Hermanson, the, the thing with Hermanson is Hermanson has excellent jujitsu as well, right? People forget how good his jujitsu is and he can wrestle a little bit and he does like body lock takedowns and trip takedowns. And that's something that Chris Curtis uh, had to think about, right? You have to consider that. And then Hermanson's high volume. I just think Amavov doesn't have the gas to do it. I, I don't think he has the gas. And Chris Curtis loves body shots, right? What zaps your gas tank more than body shots? So I don't think the blueprint is so cut and dry like people think that it is. Like, man, this is such an easy fight. We just don't engage and we're going to win the fight, right? You just skirt on the outside. You're already fighting a losing battle, right? Just from the eyes of the judges. If you're fighting on the outside. To win the fight, you have to engage. Now you're going against the best counterpuncher uh, in MMA, right? The Gaslam fight was super, super close. Um, and I, I just don't think it's as cut and dry as, as people think that it is. But I'm a little bit biased. I always go Chris Curtis now. Remember at the time, Brendan Allen was an outside fighter, right? He had just put on that performance against Puna where he jabbed him, low kicked him to death, put on an excellent performance. And then he tried doing that against Chris Curtis and his fate was sealed. Right, we've seen Amavov hurt. We've seen him gas out. We've seen him have a lot of these these really bad things. And now we, you know, he just got off the fight with uh, Sean Strickland. Now he's fighting the better teammate in Chris Curtis. So I have a play on Chris Curtis. I'm going to keep loading up. The more that people uh, keep betting Amavov, I, I really like Chris Curtis here. So he does have the intel in terms of you know his best friend just went five rounds with this guy, but Chris also doesn't have the same volume anywhere near as Sean Strickland. But the good news is Imavov is historically a low volume guy as well. And that makes this very interesting. Um, because if, like I said, if you take away the fourth and fifth round, because this is going to be a three round fight. I mean, when you look at the numbers that Imavov has been putting up, let me, let me just pull it up real quick. So the most strikes he's ever landed in a three round fight was against Jordan Williams, he landed 68 strikes. Besides that was 57 against Phil Haas. So he's not really blowing you away with volume either, which is great for Chris Curtis. Although the, the game plan, you know, the blueprint to beat Chris Curtis 
it's out there. Like if you follow it to a T, you can beat this guy. Like I said, stand on the outside, pick him apart. Don't get into these pocket exchanges, maybe faint a takedown. I mean, his fucking Chris Curtis's takedown defense has gotten so much better. Dude, it used to not be like, like you that. said. Yeah. From the old days, it was crazy. Like if you watch it, like I said, if you watch his fight with Bilal, you watch his fight, I think against Magomed Karamov. I mean, it's not even the same guy. And then he goes against Rodolfo. How many takedowns do you stuff in that fight? Like 20? 20. Yeah, 20, 20. So the guy's takedown defense has gotten better to a point. And even in the Brendan Allen fight, Brendan briefly took his back. Um, and, you know, Chris was able to get out of that very quickly. So, yeah, I mean, I feel where you're coming from, actually. I think this is a dogger pass situation. And I'm going to go with you on this one as well. I'm going to go with Chris Curtis. Uh, just because the more I look into it, Imavov doesn't necessarily fight with the volume necessary to go out there and and beat Chris Curtis uh, by decision. I'm not saying he can't do it, but just historically speaking, that's not his style. And you have seen him fade badly in fights as well. And that's where Chris Curtis is going to start ripping to the body, then mix it up up top and possibly hurt Imavov. Uh, Y'all remember that third round against Buckley? Shit got sketchy. There's been a couple other rounds. Uh, there's been a couple other fights late into them where it's been like, hmm, I'm not so sure. You know, the Jordan Williams fight was life and death. The Phil Haas fight was life and death. So, yeah, I feel where you're coming from on that one. But this next one, I'm very curious to hear what you have to say because next up in the flyweight division, we got a matchup between Miranda Maverick. She's 11-4, and four, taking on Jasmine Jazdavicius, who's 8-2. and two. And here's here's where it's interesting. Currently, they got it. Miranda Maverick minus three ten. The comeback on Jasmine Jazdavicius is plus two sixty. So, is this line off? And, and and let me ask you. And let me explain what I mean by that. Miranda Maverick. She opened minus three hundred against Shanna Young. Uh, Miranda Maverick was. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, I, I know. I bet Blanchfield at dog odds against the uh, Maverick, and. Here, it kind of just seems like, you know, she was minus 150 against Macy Barber. Um, should she really be minus three something against Jasmine? So as far as breaking down the takedown dynamic, because I know Jasmine is, you know, she's kind of a bigger physical chick. Uh, she likes to call herself, you know, the Canadian GSP, which is kind of funny. But my, my issue with that is GSP had like the most insane blast double great single legs, whatever the case may be. And Jasmine's known mostly for her upper body takedowns. And that really frustrates me when I watch a lot of her fights um, because, you know, even the, the last one most recently against Fernandez, uh, Gabby Fernandez, that was her name, right? Um, yeah. I bet on Jasmine in that fight. Finally, she started shooting for the legs. And whenever she did that, she got her takedown. So I was very happy to see it. But historically speaking, she's got a habit of those upper body kind of Greco takedowns. I'm not sure those are going to work against Maverick. I think more of the lower body takedowns are going to work too. Maverick is a strong chick, man. I mean, she's got that farm girl strength. Uh, she's a southpaw. She's, what, like 12 years younger. Um, she's very talented, a little bit more volume. But is Jasmine a bit more physical than her is what I'm trying to figure out here. In addition to, are is there value at this plus two? What is it? plus 260 odds all right so, so to answer a few questions do i think she's more physical the answer is no but do i think there's value at these odds a thousand percent right i'm watching these uh i'm watching this tape today and i've been long uh miranda maverick hater 
Really? Right? She, oh, long Miranda Maverick came <laughs> try to find a way that she's going to lose. It's just weird to me though. Let me see. She had the one really good fight where she looked amazing. Um, let's see who was Sabina Mazzo, who was not a grappler. Um, yes, no, I think it was against, uh, uh, Jojo. I think it was but, against Jojo. Where I, but where jo- I Jojo amazing. was fucking tagging her up until she got cut. Don't, don't forget that. Okay, maybe it wasn't that one then. Maybe it was the one after that where it was uh, Jillian. But Jillian. I, I don't think so. There was one fight where, where DC was like, man, her boxing has come a long way. And it actually looked really good. Her head movement, her boxing, her combinations were in tight. They were really, really good. But I, I look at Miranda Maverick and her body is so square and so boxy. And she's a little bit slow, a little bit short reach. I think it's just awkward. It's it's similar to how I feel where where striking is a work in progress always for me. Because the way my body is, I'm built like a grappler. So I grapple, right? I can wrestle, I can do jiu-jitsu for hours and hours and hours. But striking, it's weird how I throw my punches because my body is just weird for it. And no matter how much I train, I can get a lot better, but it's not going to be like a, I'm never going to be Rod Tank. Never in my life will I ever be him. It will just never happen, period. And he might not grapple like me, but I will never strike like him, right? It's just how it goes. So I'm watching this film, and man, Jazz is just – I don't think she's as physical like you were saying, but I think she moves a lot better than than Miranda Maverick. Sometimes to me when Miranda's striking, it looks like she has two left feet, but just skill for skill and just physicality, she's been so much better than almost every girl that she's fought. But the thing with every girl that she's fought is none of them can wrestle. Right. When things start to get bad is when she panic wrestles or she wrestles and gets on top to seal the round. Now, I, I think that um, Jazz's accolades are so overblown. I, I think it's so crazy. She's a silver national medalist. I saw someone say today. Fine. Right. She's like Bea Malecki, who's a Swedish national champion <laughs> Muay Thai fighter. Right. It's the same. It's the same. Oh, level. She sucks. Um. But I think I think she has to go into this knowing she has one game plan. Let's jab and let's sprawl. Let's jab, let's sprawl. Let's jab, let's sprawl. We can fill her up with volume. We have the range on her, right? We have a lot longer reach. I really, really like Jazz in this spot just for the value of it, right? I think she moves so much better. If she can stop one or two takedowns, I really think this could be Jazz's fight. She just moves a ton better. Now, the one thing that worries me is the cardio, right? You do watch kind of fight by fight. Jazz tends to slow down a lot round three. Um so maybe that would be interesting as uh, Miranda Maverick, like submission props in the third round, something like that. But I, I think there's a ton of value to be had with Jazz here. Yeah, my history betting uh, Maverick. So I cashed on her against Jillian. I lost on her against Macy. And then I bet on Aaron Blanchfield at like plus 125 odds against uh, Maverick. <laughs> so, so two and one on, uh, on Maverick fights. Um, and then with Jazz... I bet her her last fight, I think it was like plus 105, plus 115 or something like that against Gabriella. Because we saw in Gabriella's, you know, regional tape, she can't stuff a takedown to, to save her life. And no, it, she can't, but she's a unit, that chick. Oh, man, on the feet. If you don't shoot on her, holy shit. You know what I'm saying? Um, and One I think I want to add with this is is I was so impressed by her um, her composure. Right When Gabby, who's got the biggest legs and the fastest kicks I've ever seen, is bombing on her. I love this. I love this. And this is something that Mab does all the time. She just goes, okay. And just the composure in the pocket. That's something that really, really impressed me in the, uh, in the face of that fight. Yeah. Um, and then the fight she lost against Natalia. I mean, I think Natalia is headed yeah. straight towards the top 15. 
um that's one i'm gonna give her a pass for you know even but i mean were there some things that you know like i said why so many upper body takedowns let's get down let's get down to the legs that's what i want to see a bit more um so hopefully she does that here you know because miranda maverick's been taken out how many times in ufc competition um she's been taken down at least 10 times in ufc competition so there, there is a path to victory here. And if the fight's close, I mean, like I said, I don't know shit about them Canadian judges, but hopefully uh, the judges judging this fight train at the same gym as Josta Vicious or something like that. So you never know, man. But no, I agree with you. This is 100% a dogger pass situation. I'm not going to lay minus 300 on on Maverick in the spot where I don't think it's a squash match. Like if it was a squash match, okay, that's one thing. But when I think that this could be 1-1 going to the third round, could be a split decision type fight. It's a dogger pass situation, and uh, Jasmine's in her prime right now. Like this is probably we're getting close to like the the finished product of Jasmine Jastavicius. Whereas Miranda, she's just a kid, you know. She, she's she's a mature kid, but she's just a kid, no less. She's got a long way to go. I think you're older than her, right? You know, so um, yeah, I think she's got a long way to go in this game. So, oh, sorry. There's a bet that I really really like here, and it hasn't been released yet. But the spread for Jazz uh, Jasmine. I think that's a great bet when it comes out. But how many books is that available in? Man, you got to move from Georgia. Um, it's actually on DraftKings now. It's widely available on oh, DraftKings. It's on DK now. Well, yeah, I do got to move in from Georgia so I can start posting shit, you know, because if you look, if you go Google Georgia gambling laws, you'll understand <laughs> why I don't post certain things. But I do agree with you on that because back in the day, five dimes used to have the point spreads, right? The plus 3.5 and this and that. And one thing I've always advocated for is the same way you get point spreads in every fucking football, uh, basketball, baseball. Like, why can't MMA have? you know, uh, point spreads in every book, kind of like you have over unders. Like why can we not have point spreads? I think it needs to be a regular part of MMA betting period. And it's, it's regular now DraftKings. Thank God for DraftKings, man. DraftKings changed my life. They just sent me a summer package with like a towel and a hat and all kinds of shit. But, uh, bet online <laughs> has it always the spread bets. And then, uh, DraftKings has, has now adopted them. And one thing that's interesting, it's kind of a soft, this is where you got to hit DraftKings hard is, is every time they try to do something new, that's when you have to just make them pay, right? That's why I made a million is because they try to do something new and on their own and they just have idiots running it over there. One thing that Bet Online doesn't do is in close fights, they don't release spreads, right? If it's like a pick them fight, they don't put spreads out. If it's like minus 140, they don't put spreads out. DraftKings put spreads out for every fight. I think this is a great spot for, uh, for the spread, even if it's minus 200. I, I think Jazz can win a round. I, I mean, easily. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that to my attention. Um, I'm gonna have to pay more attention, you know, going forward. Not just click those money lines and look, see yeah. see what they got uh, available as well. Because normally, like, it's not it's not on the same page as the money line. It's under the props, right? No, no, it's the same page now. Oh, it's on the it same shows, page now. Yeah, it shows spread. Uh, money line over under all on the same page. Oh, that is beautiful. Can I, can I just like tip my cap and shed a tear for how beautiful that is? Cause that's a sign of the times emerging because back in the five dimes day. So like, you know, for the, for money line, you just go, you know, it would have money line over under. That's it. You'd have to go search through the props, scroll all the way fucking down uh, to the bottom of the page to get the point spreads. Right. So now that, that you're telling me they're on the same page uh, is music to my ears. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's capitalize on that going forward. So <laughs> next up in the Bantamweight division, we got Eamon Zahabi 
he's nine and two, taking on Orichi Lang, who's twenty four and nine. Currently, they got it. Eamon Zahabi minus. Well, shit, that's on Bet Online. So on Bet Online, according to Fight Odds, on Bet Online, Eamon's a slight favorite, but everywhere else, um, Iori is minus one twenty five. And Zahabi's plus 105. You know, I think Fight Odds might be wrong on this. Um, I, I mean, I could log into Bet Online and check right now, but uh, bottom line is it's a pick 'em with a slight lean on Iori. Um, you know, it, it's tough because it's like on one hand, Zahabi, you question his commitment to the game, kind of getting up there in age, super low volume. Um, but back in the day, he kind of was a bit of a madman, would take a lot more risks. I don't think he's been taking as many risks now. Whereas with Iori, um sometimes the volume isn't where i want it to be but he's got the kind of power where you know he'll hit guys and and they'll 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 think twice about engaging with him especially in the pocket but on the flip side you know you know he lost around to jay perrin he got taken down a few times by jay perrin that's not good i mean dude if you for your you know after you had a couple fights under your belt if you don't feel like cutting weight and you want to test the waters at 35s i'd be uh Know, lobbying for Brandon Olivas versus Jay Perrin. You know what I'm saying? So losing a round to that guy is not a good look. But at the same token, Zahabi doesn't have the activity I like. And I'm very curious how he responds to these shots by Iori. Um, but I don't really have much interest in betting this fight personally at, at the yeah. moment. Yeah, I have to sit this one out because uh, AQ is a, uh, is a teammate of mine. So I have to. Uh... Dude, how hard does that guy hit? Oh my God. I, I think I've told this on, on our podcast, right? I, I went into spar with them. So we have this like weird ancestral relationship. We have a few different gyms. So there's fight ready where Santino coaches head coach there. And he's also the head coach at siege MMA. Uh, and that's the gym that I represent is siege, but cross train at both, whatever. Right. So a lot of times when people want extra work, they'll come train at siege with me. Right. So all the Mongolians come train with us. Um, so me and me and AQ have been good friends, right? I came straight. I strangled him at siege. And then we go back to fight ready in a sparring day. <laughs> And, uh, you know, um, uh, Hey Lee is every time I see him, he's like, Hey, how you doing brother? How are you doing? Always so nice to me. AQ, I guess likes me. He's like, Hey, what's up, man? How you doing? And we start sparring and he is just lighting me the fuck up with, with calf kicks, like as hard as he can whack, whack, whack. And I got done. I go talk to Eddie Charles. Like, dude, what, what the hell is wrong with this guy? what I do to him? We're supposed to be light sparring. He goes, did he, uh, did he punch you? I said, no, he's just throwing calf kicks. He goes, no, he likes you. That's the, he likes it. So he knocks people out in the gym is what you're saying. Uh, he tries. Yeah. Yeah. He tries. He tries. Yeah, dude. Because like when I watch this guy's fights, um, like I said, like when he cracks these guys, when he was at 25s, I couldn't believe he was making 25s because that's a dude like now, like he moved up to 35s rightfully. So he was so fucking big at 25, but you saw that, that first UFC win he had against Cameron else. I mean, the way he treated that guy, he destroyed him in a way. And I know I was talking a little shit about the parent fight, you know, parent taking him down. But we all know who landed the harder shots in that fight. And we all know who won that fight fair and square. And I think to, to give him a little slack, it might have been in altitude, if I remember correctly, too. So maybe, you know, he slowed down after yeah. the dude's ass for two rounds. Well, that, that was the thing, right? So it was at altitude. Uh, this is a funny story. I don't know how much like I'm allowed to say like from what Santino's told me, but uh, it was at altitude. It was in Utah, right? If, right, if I'm yeah, not yeah. mistaken. And Santino goes, hey, AQ, you need to start swimming, man. Like you got to swim. You got to get your cardio up. Uh, you're fighting at altitude. You need to start swimming. And he's like, oh, okay, coach, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. 
never swam, not the whole camp. And then they get back and he goes, dude, your cardio like lets you down a little bit. Like, what's up? Didn't you swim? Like I told you to. And he goes, coach, I don't know how to swim. Like, he's oh, like, I don't know man. how to swim. I, I didn't want to tell you that. I don't know how to swim. Uh, it was at altitude. Um, I, I think that the cut was too big for AQ, right? When he goes to spar, he spars the 45ers. Everyone thinks he's a 45er. He is massive. I feel like I'm a good size 25er. I walk around at about 150 pounds. That guy makes me look like a like an atom. He's he's huge. He hits hard. He's aggressive. He can wrestle when he wants to. Um, and that's all I think I can say about uh, about this fight. Yeah, man. Next up in the featherweight division, we got a matchup between Blake Builder. He's eight zero and one, taking on Canada's Kyle Nelson, who's thirteen and five currently. They got it. Blake Builder minus two forty. The comeback on Kyle Nelson is plus two hundred five. So Brandon, I mean, Blake Builder. I mean, it's interesting because it's like you watch his regional fights. A lot of these wins are like <laughs> comebacks. He gets tagged up in a lot of these fights. He gets taken down a lot in a lot of these fights. But the dude's got that dog in him. You got to give him credit. He's, he's a fucking dog out there, man. And I mean, he's hit some interesting submissions. You know, I think didn't he have like some some weird comeback triangle in one of those fights? And um, yeah. and then also the Shane Young fight. Shane Young's known for being a guy that. Uh, he's a bit of a punching bag, but he also pushes a decent pace. And Builder went out there and outstruck him in a way where I'm gonna pull up the numbers right now. According to their numbers, I mean Blake Builder went out there and threw over 100 significant, landed over 100 significant strikes in that fight, um, as well as landed a takedown there too. And it was in uh, Australia. So now he goes from fighting Shane Young in Australia. Now he's fighting Kyle Nelson in Canada, which is pretty cool. Like he's getting some sky miles, getting to be, you know, the bad guy, you know, in enemy, enemy territory. But look, Kyle Nelson, we, we already know the deal here. Look, this guy is one in five in the UFC. They say he's one in four, but he lost the Duho Choi fight. Don't even try me on no bullshit. Um, and another thing I like to talk about how I like fading these low volume guys the most amount of strikes that Kyle Nelson's ever landed in a single UFC fight was the Billy Q fight where he landed 56. And I mean, he got face planted bad. And if I don't know if you remember the kind of shit he was talking before that fight, he said, Billy Q is not a fighter. He's a survivor. And then Billy Q face planted him. Um, I just feel like the story has always been the same. Kyle Nelson has a good round in him, but if you stand up to the bully, he's going to fade. You know, maybe he's added a couple more elements to his game in terms of he's got more experience now. He's been landing some takedowns in fights, but overall, I think the dynamic is the same. His output is too low. Um, I don't necessarily consider him to be the toughest, especially down the stretch, but he does have a little bit of pop early on. You got to be careful. You can't just fight this guy with your hands down and your chin up. He can crack, but as the fight progresses, I kind of see Blake Builder just being a little bit too physical, you know, taking over, landing that opportunistic takedown at the end of the round. Kind of when you when you zoom out and you see the box score, I think the the significant strikes and the takedown totals are going to surpass uh, Kyle Nelson. And for that reason, I think Blake Builder is going to win this fight. It's just, at minus 250, am I willing to get involved? Not sure. What do you think? Ooh, the, uh, I think more than the Mike Malott fade, the Blake Builder fade is coming. It, it, it wasn't that long ago that he was fighting in CFFC and showing everything you don't want to see in a fighter, right? Bad chin, bad fight IQ, laying on his back, uh, thinking his jitsu is better than it is. But yet time and time again, he is, he, he's risen to the occasion, beating guys that should mop him. 
right? The guy in contender series, what Alex Morgan should have mopped him. Regivaldo Carvalho should have mopped him. Frank Bonafuente should have mopped him. And yet he found wins in every single one of these fights by finish, right? Even Shane Young, right? That was Izzy's boy trying to give him a, a soft spot. And yet he, he, he won again. I have an issue with, um, with his training. So the, the word on the street is that the dude works harder than anybody. The dude trains like four or five times a day, uh, like hour, two hours at a time, right? It reminds me of Tabitha, honestly, like when I went out to train with her and the pace that she was doing. But the problem that I have with the training is that each part of it is segmented. It's one boxing, then you're going to your jiu-jitsu, then you're hitting your wrestling, then you're hitting your strength conditioning. And there's not one thing to wrap it all in together. And you see that in Blake's style, right? He's either boxing or he's doing jiu-jitsu. He's never blending things. He's never faking a takedown, throwing over the top, right? He's either doing one or the other. Kyle Nelson is almost the opposite, right? He just kind of fights. He doesn't have like, okay, now I'm boxing. Now I'm doing jujitsu. He just kind of fights, which is something that I usually really like uh, as far as a stylistic matchup, right? That's why Brazilians, I love to bet against Brazilians because they're either doing Muay Thai or they're doing jujitsu and it's never both. It's never standing up. It's never doing these things, right? I just don't know that that Kyle Nelson is is the guy to do it necessarily, right? Not a massive, massive puncher. And we have seen Blake go down a ton of times, right? Frank face planted him, Regivaldo face planted him. Like a lot of guys are, are, are tagging that chin, but I don't think Kyle's the guy to do it. He's too slow. He keeps things so much in front of him, right? We were kind of talking about unorthodox striking earlier, but Kyle Nelson is show, He's going to tell you five minutes in advance, what punch he's going to throw. And then he'll throw it. And you're like, all right, well, it was right there. Like I saw it the whole time. Um, Honestly, as long as Blake's just not on his back for, for periods of time, I really like him to outstrike Kyle. Uh, I think he's going to push a better pace. I think he's in better shape. Honestly, his boxing has gotten a lot better. It's it's pretty decently clean. Um, I'm with you. I'm going to go the uh, – I don't know that he's that much younger, but it seems like the more up-and-up guy in Blake Builder, maybe the more talented guy and the guy who wants it a little bit more. But, man, the, the fate is coming. And I, I would avoid parlaying this one heavy or using this as a building block because you could be really disappointed the second that uh, Blake gets a, a kick caught and ends up on his back for three rounds. So no Blake Builder building block. Say, say, say that three times fast. It. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise it. Blake Builder building block. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say it three times fast. But if you all in the comments, Blake Builder building block say that three times in a row as fast as you can all right next up in the flyweight division we got david dvorak who's <laughs> 20 and 5 welcoming steve urseg who's 9 and 1 to the ufc currently they got it david dvorak minus 275 the comeback on steve urseg is plus 235 let me say this david dvorak is tougher than a two dollar steak man that fight against manel cap I mean, firstly, the fact that this dude didn't tap to that Kimura. Now, granted, when you want to talk about the little details, I mean, the back of his hand wasn't actually on the back, um, wasn't sliding on the back. So maybe, you know, Manel could have made a slight adjustment. But still, man, that shit looked like it fucking hurt. Tons of other guys would have tapped. Manel actually got his black belt not too long ago. So credit to this dude for not tapping to that. And in addition to that, he was getting dropped all over the fucking place. Um and he didn't look for a way out. Like, I felt like the third round, he started to come on a little bit hard. Now, early in the fight, he was kind of running away from Cap, which I don't blame him for. But, and I don't think he's going to be doing here because Steve does not have anywhere near the firepower of Manel. Um, 
so you know, if you want to put stock in the you know uh, Mateus Nicolau and and Cap whooping his ass, sure. But this is not. This is no longer a top five showdown. You know, this is welcoming a new guy to the UFC. And look, I like this kid, Steve Erzak, man. I mean, you know, especially in the first round, he's got some solid jujitsu. He's a black belt. You know, he's gotten you know a, a wide array of submissions uh, on his record. His stand-up offensively isn't half bad, just defensively. I mean, for a flyweight, he's got that tall man's defense. You know, he's five foot nine, which for a t- for a flyweight is pretty fucking tall. Kind of leaves his chin straight up in the air. But the biggest weakness I see in Steve Ursig's, um fighting is that go go pull up his fight uh, two fights ago when he fought Cody Haddon, some two zero and guy, some two and zero guy. The fight that went to the decision, the the fight where he didn't get his first round finish. Bro, he was gassing in a way. And that second round, that 2-0 guy was taking him down, um, was doing his thing. It's just that guy wasn't experienced enough to capitalize. And David Dvorak is more than experienced to capitalize here. I mean, as long as he doesn't get stubbed in this first round, I mean, I think he's going to pick this dude apart straight up. Now, I don't want it to sound like I'm disrespecting Urseg because I do think he can actually win some UFC fights uh, down the line for sure. Just not this one. I mean, I think it's first round finish or bust for Urseg, and I think Dvorak can win in a multitude of ways. And if this fight starts round two, then I'm going to be very confident in Dvorak. So, yeah, my pick is Dvorak uh, to kind of welcome this guy to the UFC. And, you know, maybe next fight, uh, you know, Urseg will be a little bit undervalued, and then we can take advantage, you know, on a lesser opponent that he might submit in the first round. But if he does not submit, Dvorak in the first round, I think he's in deep uh, you-know-what. Oh, man, I, I feel the complete opposite on this one. Um, you know, a little bit earlier, you were talking about narratives. And um, I, I like to look at, especially when I'm doing regionals. Honestly, I, I've, I've chilled a lot on UFC. UFC money lines are really, really hard to crack. They're really hard to beat. They're really hard to be profitable and successful uh, all the time on UFC, at least for me personally, especially my style. I'm definitely more of a regional guy. Uh, a lot less, lot less involved. But you, you know, you talk about narratives. How many times was Steve Ersig scheduled to fight Clayton Carpenter? Like uh, ten times. Contender series in the UFC, like three times. It, it was a lot. And was it? According to Tapology, only once, but th- that could be wrong. Yeah, that's wrong. It, it, it was supposed to be on Contender Series, and then that got canceled. Clayton fought Edgar or Cherise or whatever, and then they were supposed to fight just in the UFC, and the fight got moved twice uh, and still couldn't happen because of visa issues. So it was three times I think this fight was supposed to happen and, and, and didn't happen. And I know, uh, I know Clayton since I was a kid. Clayton, phenomenal kid. Some reason in MMA, he just can't put it together. I just think his his grappling is not what people think that not what he thinks it is. I don't think he can wrestle very well. And his jitsu is completely overrated. And they kept scheduling Ursig to fight him. I would pick Ursig in that fight nine times out of ten. I, I think he wins it nine times out of ten. So now they're giving him David Dvorak, who almost got his arm snapped off by Manel Kopp, who's a completely different style, right? Manel's a, a a striker. Now they're giving him a pure grappler. Okay. I, I like the style here against David Dvorak. The one thing that scares me about David Dvorak is he's big. He is huge. He's five foot seven, but he is filled out. Where Steve Ersig might be five nine, but he's skinny beanpole. Oh, yeah. That's the only thing that's kind of worrying me here. Now I want to address the uh, Cody Haddon fight. Please do. First of all, Cody Haddon was what five and zero as an amateur. Okay, and then he is four and one as a pro now. His only loss being the one to Steve Ursick. Steve took that fight. I think they said in the commentary on like three or four days notice. 
it was an extremely short notice fight. Now you are a good talent scout. What did you think of Cody Haddon in that fight? I mean, for a two and O guy it was decent. I think the kid is a stud. I mean, he can box his ass off. He can wrestle. I think the kid is very, very good. Now, I think Steve should have probably run through him at that stage in their career, right? The guy's a, a veteran. He's the champion. He's all these things. You're right. He should have run through him, but extremely short notice. And he got gassed out in the second. And in the third round, he came back alive and said, fuck it. I'm going to win this fight. Got on top, finished the fight dominantly. There was no doubt who won that fight. He won one and three, lost the second round. It was clear. I think Cody Haddon's got a really, really bright future. That kid is a good, good, good prospect. So I think it's hard to, to have too much criticism of Steve Ersig in that fight. I think this style is completely different. One thing that I really like about Steve Ersig is he shoots and he's got a pretty fast double leg. And when he doesn't get it, he swings to the outside. I think people put way too much stock in the David Dvorak's record, right? He's fighting these guys in Croatia who suck. His actual skills are, are decent. They're okay. He's got a jab and he's big. That's to me what he's got. He's got a jab and he's big. I think this is a grappling heavy approach. I like Steve Ersig in this spot. Uh, I, I think he's amazing value here. I, I wouldn't price David Dvorak minus 400 over almost anybody. No, I feel you in terms of that. I'm not trying to lay the chalk myself either. But but the reason I'm not taking the shot on Ersig is because, well, firstly, this is short notice too because Dvorak was supposed to fight Matt Schnell. <clears throat> don't, don't forget about that. Um, God, I had so many Matt Schnell tickets. It was crazy. You, oh, you didn't think Dvorak was going to touch his chin? Fuck no. So, I mean, I didn't even look into that fight. I didn't know who I had. But Dvorak, here's the thing, man. Okay, padded record, whatever. But, like, he's had 25 pro fights. That that kid that uh, gave Ursak problems two fights ago was 2-0. and oh. And I know that doesn't mean that, <laughs> that doesn't mean that Ursak can't win this fight. This is all speculative. But, like, I just think this is a – this guy, Dvorak, seen a completely different level of con- – he's seen what the top five – in the UFC flyweight division looks like. Now, granted, he got his he's got he got his ass absolutely handed to him by both guys. He still went the distance with them. He still showed a lot of toughness. Um, so, I mean, do you think that Ursek can win by any other method than first round submission? Uh, yeah, I do. I think he can win a decision. I think he can bank one and two. That that is the biggest part that I worry about. Is just with that style that's so jujitsu heavy, right? It's like a Herbert Burns, like we brought up earlier, right. like. If, if you're just trying this jiu-jitsu and it doesn't work, and then you're just a, a limp noodle and you're just flopping around on the ground. That's the problem that we might run into here. But I, I think he could win one and two. All, all it's going to take is one takedown. Steve Ersig's jiu-jitsu is, is excellent. I think his jiu-jitsu is legitimately very, very good. I think it takes one cock kick or one trip takedown. It just takes one takedown each round for him to bank an entire round. Uh, I think round three could get a little sketchy for him. But yeah, I think he could win by submission in any round i think he could win by decision too well we're on opposite sides in terms of picks but this man has his money down i'm not laying the chalk on dvorak so i wish you the best hopefully i mean look, i think the kid belongs in the ufc just not sure he's ready to jump in there with a top 15 guy yet but let's see let's see now last but not least in the strawweight <laughs> division we got Diana Belbitza. She's 14 and 7, taking on Maria Oliveira, who's 13 and 6. Currently, they got it a pick em. Uh Diana Belbitza minus 115, Maria Oliveira minus 105. So pick them with a slight lean on Diana. Well, it just depends where you look. Some places it's dead even, some places a slight lean on one, some places a slight lean on the other. Now, real quick, refresh my memory. Didn't 
you and your team have a camp against Maria Oliveira with Vanessa Demopoulos. So you've already studied Maria Oliveira's game in and out, and you're very familiar with what she brings to the table, right or wrong. Yeah, that actually last fight I was in the corner. Okay, great. So why, I think it's better if you take this one first than me. I Man, it, it is really hard because I think that Maria Oliveira is one of the worst fighters to be in the UFC currently under contract. And weirdly, she looked a lot better striking in that fight um, than she has ever looked before. I think one of my – I've had a few like major, major losses. And one of my biggest ones that I ever had was uh, GDP against Maria Oliveira. That one crushed me. Watching the fight back over and over again, I still think GDP won. I thought GDP won when I was watching it live. Like It haunts me to this day because someone so bad at striking and has so many holes and flaws in her game could eke out a decision is, is, is beyond me. Um, man, this girl is, geez, let me see. Let me pull up her record here. What is her record in the UFC? She is one and two. Yeah. yeah. One and two versus one and three. Oh yeah. Deanna Belvis is one and three. And, and if, you wanna, if you want to include contender series, one and three versus one and three, because I don't know, a lot of people forgot Maria Oliveira. That was the person that fought Marina Rodriguez on contenders. And it was a standing TKO where Maria was like, no mas. Now, granted, Deanna, you know, I'd say the best part of her game is her striking, just nowhere near Marina, of course. But uh, yeah, I-, I was surprised Maria made it to the to the UFC after all that. Even got a win in the UFC after all that. God, it's, it's insane to me. So he- here's just on the fundamental things, right? Maria pushes her punches, right? When, when you're actually here, right? You want to really turn it over. You want to get your shoulder so you can sit down on your punches like an Ige, right? Ige is a great puncher, fundamentally a phenomenal puncher. She pushes her punches out there. Like she's, uh, I don't even know how to like describe it. She's pushing her punches. Now, one thing that did look a lot better in her last fight, she actually did remind me of Anderson Silva. The way that she was just kind of like, you know, hitting the little lean back calm, and counter punching. Calm, calm down, calm down. Hey, I'm just saying, name Spider Girl. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. But she she looked a lot better. But I spent a week with her, right? I, I spent a week with her out in Vegas uh, for that fight, and it just seemed like she cared so much more about the the glitz and the glamour of being in the UFC and fighting on TV than she actually cared about the fight. Now, if you've done any Instagram stalking at all and you've seen her page recently, she's in Brazil. There's not a single training post. I don't think she was training that much to begin with when she was in Vegas, right? Most of her sessions were at the PI, which is not like organized classes. It's like you get you and your buddies together and you go train a little bit and do some stuff. I've heard nothing but she's lazy. Now she's in Brazil with no one to hold her accountable. I haven't seen one single training post, not one. The one thing I like about Diana Belbiza is uh, she puts it out there, right? She has tons of volume. Sometimes she toggles between looking like actually a really decent striker and like day one cardio kickboxing, right? Some of her kicks look horrible. Some of her stuff looks bad, but she's actually going toe to toe with, with GDP, who I think is actually a very good striker, like actually legitimately a very good striker. She's having very close rounds, making things gritty. I think she really wants this. I think this is one fighter who, who, who wants to be there in the UFC and not be known for, for being a pretty face, puts out a ton of volume, lots of kicks, lots of angles, a lot better cardio. There's a lot more upside, I think, to Deanna Belbiza here than there is Maria Oliveira, even if Maria Oliveira might have a couple moments, right? The grappling is is nil on both sides. Um, I already have a play on Deanna Belbiza, and uh, I'm pretty happy with it. 
Yeah. Um, so I'm on the same side here, and I want to bring up something interesting. So check this out. When Diana Belbita uh, fought Molly McCann, right, the judges' scorecards were 30-25, 30-25, 30-25. But when you get 30-25, but you attempted 252 significant strikes and you landed 100 <laughs> significant strikes, like, hey, that's a bad girl right there. Like, I respect that a lot. And in a fight like this with Maria Oliveira, where it is going to be that three-round striking match and, you know, one has slightly more volume and she's the Canadian one. I mean, this is a spot. Wait, she's Canadian? Deanna Belbita? I mean, she trains in Canada. I mean, she probably, she was like born, like I think in Europe or something, but she's been training in she's Canada. She's Romanian. You should know this. But she's been training in Canada the last, like with Kyle Nelson and Jazz Davicius and all of them. She's been training with them for like the last few years. So she's an honorary Canadian. You know what I'm saying? I didn't but, know she was at the legendary Niagara top team with the famous Jeanette. Oh, yeah. Is that right? So, yeah, I mean, I see it being a close striking match where Deanna is ahead, you know, on the numbers. And, you know, hopefully she walks out with a Canadian flag. Oh, yeah, they ban flags. Never mind. Hopefully the judges recognize the Canadians in her corner and uh, see it her way. But honestly, uh, Maria Maria is not much of a takedown threat, uh, which is where I would be concerned. Um, so, yeah, I just think the volume difference is probably what's going to edge Deanna to, you know, a decision win here. Um, it's just, you know, it's, sometimes it's tough with these fights. You know, as a competitor, man, that what you eat the night before can make all the difference. What you do the morning of the fight, where your mindset's at. Did you get into a fight with your spouse? You know, whatever the case may be, you never know where their mindsets are at. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because this is a lower level matchup. With some of the higher level guys where their minds are so goddamn locked in, I'm not worried about some outside factors, but this is one of those where like any little thing could have an impact on this fight. She got into a fight with her boyfriend, you know? Like, remember uh, when Joanne Calderwood like uh, fought uh, Marina Morose and was like a massive favorite? got armbarred in like the first two minutes and then said that, you know, her boyfriend dumped her before and all I'm just, I'm just bringing, I'm just like bringing up random shit, but bottom line, I got Deanna Belbita to out volume Marina Oliveira and win a decision in the first fight of the night. Hey, somebody in the comments put it perfectly. Yeah. She's a shot putter, not a puncher. And that's exactly what I was looking for. She shot puts her punches. She, she doesn't sit down on them. That's, that's perfect. Perfect analogy. That's what I was looking for. Well said. So before we get out of here, we got to talk about the fight to watch and the fighter to watch. So Brandon Olivas, in your opinion, what is the fight to watch for UFC 289? Jeez. Well, I mean, there's one obvious answer, um, but I I'm going to go a little different. I think uh, Eric Anders versus uh, versus Mad Mark Andre Barriol is the the fight to watch. Um, so okay, so obviously we all know Charles and Benil's the fight to watch. But besides that, I'm gonna <laughs> go. I'm gonna go with Mike Malott versus Adam Fugit. Look, um, both these guys, all their UFC fights have ended inside the distance. Mike Malott is getting the featured bout in Canada as the hot Canadian prospect, and Adam Fugit has only been fighting up and coming prospects. And last fight, you know, if he makes it two in a row, he'll be known as a bit of a prospect killer. And if he does that in Canada, it'd be amazing to see the crowd's reaction. So no matter what, I see violence. And this is going to be almost like a crossroads fight for for both guys, like to see where they're going to go next. So for that reason, Mike Malott versus Adam Fugit is my fight to watch. Now, Brandon, who is your fighter to watch? I think it's got to be 50K Ige. I think that's the uh, the fighter to watch. Any reason why? 
Oh, man. I think, first of all, the, the fight is going to be entertaining anyways with just the personalities in the mix. Uh, but I, I think that's going to be the highest upside for, uh, for, for violence. I think uh, he's going to put on a showcase, look clean, and put himself back in the, back in the conversation for uh, these higher-level fights. Um, and I'm going to go with his dance partner, Nate Landwehr. This has been one of the most exciting guys in the UFC. He's got such a great personality, and now he's finally got his chance to fight a top 15 guy. If he can come out here and beat Dan Ige, he's going to enter the rankings. It's only going to be big fights from here on out. So this is the chance of his lifetime, and win, lose, or draw, I have never seen a boring Nate Landwehr fight. So for that reason, he is my fighter to watch. So before we get out of here, uh, Big Bird was asking for any PFL, uh, you know, things we might want to say. Do you have anything to say about PFL? He's asking specifically about Akeem Bashir and Alexei. Now, I know Akeem Bashir because <laughs> I've trained with him in Atlanta many years. Do you know anything about his opponent, Alexei Pergrande? Yeah, I do. He's a – do you want me to go talk about him? Please. Yeah, he's – I think he's a, like a half-Russian kid. Um, he was training in like South Carolina or something for a few years. Then he fought in the PFL and he was part of, uh, I don't know if you remember Alex Pergrande, but he was a uh, part of the, uh, pre-recorded PFL fights. Oh, so I cashed on him. Yeah. Oh yeah. You didn't cash as good as me, but you cashed on him. <laughs> I, I, I got the early lines on it. You um, paid for my Florida trip. Keep going. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> he is a very green kid. He's very, um, He's developing. He honestly reminds me a lot of Shimon, I guess. Like he, he he's a very green kid. Reminds you of who? Sorry, Shimon Schmitrowski, kind of that same. Oh, but with, with a little more heart. With a little more heart. Like they're both like these half Russian kids, but yeah, he he's grappling. He's been getting a ton of experience at Killcliff. He was uh, Michael Johnson's main training partner. Definitely a grappler. He almost like a Chase Hooper as far as his striking. Like he kind of grapples to strike, grapples to strike, grapples to strike. But uh, I, I think. Um, I haven't looked at Akeem yet. I just know Alexi. Decent wrestler, very good jujitsu, and uh, the PFL really, really enjoys the kid. They really like him. Okay, and this is what I know about Akeem because I know Akeem personally. Um, used to spar with him back in the day. Really cool guy. Uh, he's got a bit of a flowy style, a really good pace standing. We'll get in your face. We'll throw a lot of volume. The issue is um, the takedown defense isn't the best. Um, but on his back, I mean, he's going to look for stuff. You know, he's gotten an opportunistic triangle before in his pro career. Um, let me tell you a cool story about Akeem uh, that like really made me respect him, amongst other things. Uh, so I used to go to this open mat where we'd spar and do all these things, and a bunch of the fighters from the Georgia area would all you know come through. And Akeem was fighting uh, this dude, Austin Childers, right? And so the open mat was on Sunday. And Akeem and Austin's fight was the following Friday in the NFC. So Akeem and Austin Childers both show up to the to the open mat. And, dude, they were so cool to each other. They actually sparred on the Sunday before their fight. And, like, everybody was watching, and they were super cool to each other, uh, sparring in there. <laughs> Have you ever sparred with an opponent the week before your fight? You know what I'm saying? And then uh, – then they went out there a couple days later and they fucking banged it out <laughs> in the amateur scene. Went to a split decision. Akeem won, but it was a hell of a fight. But it was just cool to see it like that. But as far as this this is concerned, Akeem's a former 35er. This Pergrande is a former 55er. There's going to be a size difference. If you look at their pictures today on the scale, Pergrande looks fucking like, like 
I mean, he looks like a 45er. He looks shredded, jacked, whereas Akeem, he doesn't look in bad shape, but he looks like, hey, you're a natural 35er. But the issue is he's 35 uh, years old in age. It's, it's harder for him to drop that weight. So uh, that's uh, what I got to say regarding that. Um, yeah. Man, you have helped me immensely with these, uh, these Georgia boys. I don't know if you can see it. Oh, it's this way. But we got, the, uh, we got the legend. I don't know. Can you see who that is? Is that Josh Mayer? That's the one and only. That is the one and only, the legend. Hell yeah, I'm happy to hear it. And if you need any more info on any of the ATL fighters fighting in PFL, because there are some, uh, including one that we didn't talk about here, you know uh, where to find me. So yeah, because the, the next three weeks, PFL is in Atlanta. I'll be at all three events. And for some of their showcase matchups, they called up like last minute, you know, some you know, NFC guys to fight some of their prospects. So I know all of them. So yeah, feel free to hit me up with that info. But uh, guys, thank you all so much for tuning in to this special edition of Half the Battle for UFC 289. Make sure you follow my man, Brandon, at Brandon Olivas. Um, subscribe to Half the Battle everywhere podcasts are found. Brandon, any message for the fans before we get out of here? Yeah, just uh, follow us on YouTube, guys. Santino DeFranco, uh, that is my coach. He's the Fight Ready head coach, and that's our YouTube channel that we run everything through. Other than that, uh, it's bare knuckle week, so uh, let's get it. Absolutely. You know, this man's been killing it, so keep up the great work. And uh, stay in the gym, too, man. I want to see you do some things inside that cage, too, even if you don't have to, like we talked about. But, nah, but you know, I know that competitive uh, fire and spirit's still there, so I'd love to see you, you know do big things. I know you signed with uh, the Pettis management, which is great to see. They're putting on good shows. Uh, my good friend Robert Hales fighting on his next show. So I'm excited about that. But again, for all the fans, thank you all so much. After this is over, please leave a comment. Uh, hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. If you feel so inclined, share. It's much appreciated. So thank you guys again. And until the next time, let's cash these bets.